Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I would like to give a special shout out and thank you to all of our donors who give at paradoxgiving.com and make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at Zechariah 14 and the teaching is entitled Contradicting Hope. When we consider what it means to live in the United States of America in 2020, There is only one sentence that I believe accurately sums up what we are all feeling. That sentence is this. We are in a pretty terrible situation here. I mean, there is a rising death toll. There seems to be no containment of this virus. And when we look at what 2020 is, we have this sense that may not get any better anytime soon. There are some who would say that 2020 is hopeless, which is why I want to talk to you about hope. Are you struggling to feel hope as you listen to this podcast? Does hope have any place in 2020? Or is hope something for those who are naive and out of touch with reality? With those questions in mind, I'd like for us to turn to the book of Zechariah. Now, we will be looking at the last chapter of this book today, but we need to get a running start to understand what kind of hope Zechariah is talking about. So if you go back to the year sometime around 1000 BCE, you would encounter a temple that Solomon built. Now, this temple is a big deal because the temple is where the people of Jerusalem believed that God lived. And the intersection of heaven and earth occurred at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now the temple stood there on Mount Zion for over 400 years before an empire to the east known as Babylon attacked and destroyed the temple in 586 BCE. Now you have to understand what it's like to watch the house of God burn by a foreign and invading army. To give some emotional depth to this event that the people of Jerusalem experienced, Ezekiel writes about this event in his prophecy, chapter 10, verse 18, when he says that the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. In other words, the people of Jerusalem felt that God abandoned them when Babylon attacked. So the Babylonians, after conquering Jerusalem, forced the survivors to come across the desert and live in exile in Babylon. And during this exile, there was this lamentation cry that arose from the people of Jerusalem where they asked, how long, O Lord, will you allow us to languish in exile? Now, the prophet Jeremiah gave a very concrete answer to that question, and he answered in his prophecy that this exile will last for 70 years. Now, surprisingly, 47 years after the exile began, another empire rose to the east of Babylon, which was Persia, led by Cyrus the Great, and they destroyed and conquered Babylon. Cyrus then sees the people of Judah living in Babylon, and he asks, who are you? And they say, we are the Jews. And he says, you are free to go home as long as you pay taxes. So in 539 BCE, the people of Judah returned to Jerusalem, which was still a pile of rubble. And they began the long and hard process of rebuilding. 19 years into this rebuilding process, just four years shy of the 70-year exile, 
The people of Jerusalem began to look around and say, it's been 66 years. Shouldn't God be a little farther along in our restoration process? If you've been with us the last couple of weeks at Paradox, you know that this is the question that frames the prophecy of Zechariah, which we have been studying during this past month. Now, Zechariah writes an answer to this question, and in this answer, he writes his thesis in verse 3 of chapter 1, when Zechariah says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. In other words, Zechariah tells the people of Jerusalem that God's restoration is conditional and not guaranteed. Now, after that, Zechariah receives a series of nine different visions affirming this thesis that the restoration of God is conditional. He then explains over the next two chapters what this conditional restoration looks like and what it means for the people of Jerusalem to return to God. We expect Zechariah to talk about this return in terms of religious practices and devotion. We assume that Zechariah will tell the people of Jerusalem, go to church more, pray more, read your Bible more, and God will restore you. But Zechariah doesn't do that. In chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, Zechariah writes these words, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. In the very next chapter, chapter 8, he writes, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. Zechariah then gives a vision about how Jerusalem will be built without walls, and all the nations will stream to Jerusalem because it will be a magnet of compassion that people will flock to. And it's this beautiful picture with one flaw. <laughs> and the flaw of Zechariah is that it keeps going. Because Zechariah doesn't just have eight chapters, Zechariah has 14 chapters. Now we're going to get to chapter 14 in a minute, but we can all agree that this is a very nice, bold, inspiring, and timeless picture of what society should be. But something drastic changes in Zechariah 9 that continues on all the way through the rest of the book. And I want to read you the words of God. I want to read one verse from each chapter until we get to 14, where we'll spend some more time. But Zechariah 9:15, God says this, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the slingers. They shall drink their blood like wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. In chapter 10, verse 3, God says to Zechariah, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Chapter 11, verse 16, God says, For I am now raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for the perishing, or seek the wandering, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even the hooves. Chapter 12, verse 6, God says, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot on a pile of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. 
A few verses later in verse 9, God says, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 2, God says, On that day I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirit. And then we finally, after we are a bit exhausted, arrive in chapter 14, to which God really expresses God's own anger. Verse 1, God says, See, a day is coming for the Lord when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So God tells Zechariah, hey, I'm going to raise up the nations to declare war on you, but don't worry, I'm going to go to war for you. To which you want Zechariah to say, but God, why don't you just skip the whole raising up the nations and just put peace in the land? But the prophecy keeps going. Verse 8, God says, On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it's here at verse 10 that we say, all right, well, it was a bit dark from Zechariah chapter 9 to 14, but at least it ended on a happy note, right? Wrong, because the prophecy keeps going. In verse 11, God says, And it shall be inhabited, for never again shall it be doomed to destruction. Jerusalem shall abide in security. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they are still on their feet. Their eyes shall rot in their sockets, and their tongues shall rot in their mouths. 13 and 14 say, On that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of a neighbor, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. Great, so God is promising civil war. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever animals may be in those camps. Then all who survive... Of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year by year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. (laughs) So in other words, God invites every nation to participate in this religious festival. And that sounds good. But if they don't show up, then God will strike them with a drought. Then in verse 18, 19, God is very angry with Egypt. God says, and if the family of Egypt do not go up and present themselves, then on them shall come the plague that the Lord inflicts on the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of the booths. Such shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of the booths. On that day, 
There shall be inscribed on the bells of those horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bulls in front of the author. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and use them to boil the flesh of the sacrifice. And there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. <sighs> and with those words, Zechariah finally, mercifully, comes to an end. Now, when you read Zechariah chapter 1 all the way through chapter 14, which I would strongly encourage you to do, I am going to guess that you will have the same question that I had when I read Zechariah for the first time. That question is this. What on earth happened between chapter 8 and chapter 9? Because I can get behind chapters 1 through 8, but chapters 9 through 14 are just the opposite of what I believe to be important, valuable, and ultimately a reflection of God's character. Now to resolve this question, you have to go to some of the big guns. And to go to a big gun, I wanna to refer to Dr. John J. Collins who teaches at Yale University. And in his book, Introduction to the Hebrew Bible, he writes this about Zechariah. He says, chapters one to eight are often referred to as first Zechariah in the scholarly community and they seem to constitute a coherent book of which the visions of Zechariah form the core. So in other words, Dr. Collins is telling us that if you just read chapter one through eight of Zechariah, it's a coherent and seemingly complete work. He then goes on to write that Zechariah nine to 14 are among the most obscure and difficult passages in the Hebrew Bible. There is no mention of Zechariah in these chapters. They were simply copied after the oracles of Zechariah in ancient manuscripts. All the material in Zechariah 9 to 14 may be regarded as a collection of anonymous oracles that were appended or added to the collection of minor prophets. So in other words, you have first Zechariah, which is chapters one to eight, which seem to be written by a person named Zechariah. And these chapters are a complete and coherent work. And then you have chapters 9 to 14, which some in the scholarly community refer to as Second Zechariah. But very few scholars believe the same person who wrote First Zechariah also authored Second Zechariah. Dr. Collins even goes so far as to say that chapters 9 to 14 was the work of many different authors that were just compiled together at a later date after they were written. In other words, when you consider the Bible and how it came together, you can picture people putting Zechariah in the Bible and then asking the question, what do we do with all of these extra writings? And somebody else who was helping to compile the Bible said, well, just stick the extra writings in the book of Zechariah. And somebody else said, that's a great idea. No one's going to read Zechariah anyways, to which Zechariah would say, hey, <laughs> Somebody's going to read my book. And while it may make people uncomfortable to think about the Bible being compiled this way, the truth is that how the Bible came into being is far more interesting and way messier than most Christians are willing to admit. 
And when we consider the messiness that brought together the current iteration of the book of Zechariah, there are many Christians or skeptics that start to question whether we should remove chapters 9 to 14. And I don't think that we should. I actually think that Zechariah is much more interesting when you include chapters 9 to 14 and compare and contrast it with chapters 1 to 8. Now, I think it's important to make the delineation between authorship, but ultimately, I think it's a very valuable thing to look at how these things are similar and how they are dissimilar, specifically around the theme of hope. Because when we look at First and Second Zechariah, First Zechariah says that things are bad, but things will get better. And Second Zechariah says that things are bad, but things will also get better. Now, they have a different way of getting better because in 1 Zechariah, we read about how things will get better with a daily, personal, and national commitment to justice, mercy, and love. 2 Zechariah says that things will get better when a divine military conqueror kills all of our enemies. Now, there are those who would dismiss 2 Zechariah and say, oh, that is so short-sighted or naive or rooted in violence. But you have to remember that this happened very recently in Jerusalem's history from when this book was written. Just in 539 BCE, they were living in exile when all of a sudden Cyrus the Great, a military conqueror, dropped out of the sky from Persia and defeated the Babylonians and liberated them and sent them home. Now, some time passed between them arriving at home and when 2 Zechariah was written, but there was this sense among the people of Jerusalem that we have a real need for another Cyrus. But not just any Cyrus, you know, like our own Cyrus. So 2 Zechariah's hope rests in a divinely appointed military conqueror. Now, this was appealing for a number of reasons. The number one reason was you don't have to do anything if a military conqueror shows up. The only thing you have to do is stay devoted to the conqueror through religion, and that divine military conqueror will allow you to live. In other words, loyalty and devotion will save you. Now, this hope of a divine military conqueror came into being about 350 years after the book of Zechariah, when the Maccabees rose up and drove the Greeks out through military force, drove them out of Jerusalem. About 250 years after that, or about 600 years after the book of Zechariah was written, a man named John was exiled on the land of Patmos because he was living under Roman rule. And John was living on Patmos, and there was this real fear that the emperor Nero, who persecuted the Christians, wasn't actually dead. And there was great fear among the early Christian community. And so they started talking about a conqueror that would arrive from heaven and put an end to Nero once and for all. This conqueror would be Jesus Christ riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> And this conqueror would end up liberating the early Christians from the Roman Empire. Now, most Christians I know still believe in this in some way, shape, or form. In fact, the majority of Christians in America have hope in a very similar fashion to the hope that is found in 2 Zechariah. That God will show up on a horse 
and murder all the people who persecute Christians or who limit Christianity and then bring the Christians back with God to heaven. So when 2 Zechariah promises that things will get better when a divine military conqueror kills all of our enemies, most Christians would respond by saying, Amen. But then there is 1 Zechariah's hope, which is quite a bit different than 2 Zechariah's hope. 1 Zechariah's hope rests in humanity's ability to change. And unlike waiting for a military conqueror to show up, there is a lot of work to do. Every human being has to be willing to adopt and put on the robe of forgiveness and mercy and righteousness. Human beings have to be willing to admit when they are wrong and to rush to apologize in an effort to make things better. Not only that, but there is no guarantee that any of this daily commitment to love will actually work. But there is always something that you can do in first Zechariah's vision of hope. So when you compare these two different ideas of what hope is between first and second Zechariah, and the fact that these two visions of hope sit side by side in the same book of our Bibles, it is a rather stunning contrast that raises the question about what hope actually is. And I believe that holding them together and talking about what hope means in 2020, we find that 1st and 2nd Zechariah reveal three requirements for hope. So let's talk about the first requirement. We began this podcast by saying that we are in a pretty terrible situation here in 2020. This out of control pandemic, the racial tensions, economic instability, we are in a terrible situation in 2020. And if Zechariah was hearing all of this and was living among us, I believe that he would say, right? It reminds me of 516 BCE. You know, the era we were trying to rebuild Jerusalem while also being heavily taxed by the Persian Empire. When we read about what Zechariah went through and when he wrote his prophecy, we have to be honest about the fact that this was a pretty terrible situation in 516 BCE. And if the people of Jerusalem, including Zechariah, could dare to have hope in 516 BCE, then I believe that we can have hope in 2020. Now notice when we read the book of Zechariah, how Zechariah presents the need for hope. Zechariah's book does not talk about how things aren't that bad, how things are actually good, and we just all need to hug this out and we'll solve our problems. No, Zechariah paints a pretty bleak picture of the reality that he's enduring, right? He talks about how difficult it is to rebuild this city. He talks about economic hardship, about threats from outside nations that may attack at any moment. He paints a pretty dark picture of what reality is because he's living through a pretty dark reality. And if we were to apply that to 2020 here in the United States of America, I think what the lesson is, is that it's important to be honest about how dire the circumstances are. 
We shouldn't spend our time telling everyone, look, it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. Racism isn't that bad. Racism doesn't even exist. We shouldn't tell people who have lost their job, hey, you know, money's just an object. You should spend time building up your treasure in heaven. When it comes to this virus and the fear and the uncertainty that people have, when we say, oh, it's not that bad, most people live, it's actually minimizing what the problem is. And what Zechariah reveals is that hope requires an honest assessment of the present. If we're serious about being people of hope in 2020, we have to be willing to make honest assessments about where we currently are and what the situation is. And this idea that we need to convince ourselves that this isn't that bad or that this pandemic is overblown, that's the wrong direction and it will lead us to something that isn't actually hope. Hope requires an honest assessment of the present. Now, if we were to get stuck in this honest assessment and just talk about how bad things are all the time, that's when we cross over from hope and enter into the world of despair. Despair happens when we get stuck in an honest assessment of the present. Hope requires that honest assessment, but when we get stuck there is when we fall into the trap of despair and we end up giving up our hope. Now, the second and third requirements of hope as revealed in Zechariah only can be seen if you compare and contrast first and second Zechariah. Because first Zechariah's hope resides in humans' abilities to change. And there is this change that is not something that happens overnight. It is a daily commitment to justice, to honesty, to truth, and to compassion. In other words, the second requirement of hope is that hope requires a continual commitment to change. Now, I know that masks are not comfortable things to wear. However, I have to say, I am deeply encouraged by the recent trend in Redlands by how many people are wearing masks. It gives me great hope to see that people are saying we can change our behavior to meet this virus head on. In fact, if somebody is wearing a mask, they are wearing the mask because they have hope that their behavior can change our fortune. The mask is 2020's symbol of hope. And while I used to wear the mask out of obligation, I'm starting to feel like the mask is the greatest thing I can do, the most tactile thing I can do to have hope here in 2020. Whenever I wear it, I feel like we are doing something to curve this virus, to ultimately make it so that this problem is much less worse than it was before. Just a few weeks ago in US News and World Report, they showed that the coronavirus model is decreasing because mask wearing is increasing. Now, while these numbers are grim, and we've talked a lot about the grim reality of the situation in other sermons, we have to talk about a statistic they cite, which is the model, which is run by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, predicts nearly 220,000 deaths in the U.S. by November 1. That number is down nearly 5,000 from its previous estimate a week ago. 
In other words, the mask wearing that we are doing together has saved 5,000 lives. And yes, the 220,000 number is awful and it's frightening and it requires that honest assessment, but we cannot get stuck there. If we are going to be people of hope, we are going to acknowledge that we have saved 5,000 lives because of the daily commitment to change we have made, specifically in regarding wearing face masks. Perhaps you've been discouraged by the racial injustice that is still happening in America in 2020. And you see all these protests that have been unmatched in America's history. You see people standing up. You see people starting to talk and start to say things like Black Lives Matter. And there's a little voice in the back of your head that asks the question, is this all just for show? You wonder if things will actually change because you know that people have protested before. And so we wonder, is there any room for hope or will this all stay the same? And we start to despair because we think it's all just for show. Well, Opal Tometi, who is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matters movement, says that she is hopeful and optimistic. But her exact quote goes further than that. In The New Yorker, she is quoted as saying, I am hopeful and optimistic that everyone will keep the same energy that they have now, two weeks from now, two years from now, 200 years from now, and more. And this hope is not a hope that changes overnight, but it's a hope that requires a daily commitment to change. And if you believe in this kind of hope, which is the second requirement for hope, it will invite you to look in the mirror every morning and ask the question, what can I personally control today? Not only that, but you would ask the question, what can I commit to changing for the rest of this year and beyond. And this hope requires direct action and it's exhausting and there's times that you wanna give up, but it's ultimately hope that you can control and do something about. Hope requires a daily commitment to change. Which brings us to the third requirement of hope, and that is revealed in 2 Zechariah. Yes, 2 Zechariah, where a divine military conqueror shows up and fixes all of the problems. While this might seem naive and shallow, this is what happened shortly before the book of Zechariah was written. And what it reveals about hope is that hope requires trust in something good that lies beyond our control. There are definitely things that we can control and change, but there are also things that are beyond our control that we cannot change. And it is tempting for us to believe that all of those forces that are bigger than us, that we have no say in, are ultimately bad forces. But we're talking about hope here. And when we're talking about hope, you have to believe in something that lies beyond your control that is at its fundamental core good. This, in my opinion, is one of the most valuable reasons to believe in God. 
Because if you believe in God and you still aren't sure how much God has control over things, if you can just believe that there is something good beyond your control, it will lead you to being a hopeful person. We are talking about a virus that is invisible to our naked eyes. And somehow this virus has brought this entire planet to its knees. Not only that, but this planet is a very tiny planet in a much larger cosmic arena. And there is something out there that I believe is good, that cares about our suffering, that can change our fortunes beyond what we can control. And when we consider that requirement, a question that we ask ourselves is, what is beyond my control? And is there something out there that I can trust as being good? Now, if you are atheist or agnostic, there is still this boundary of what you can control and what you cannot. Can you believe in something good that lies beyond what you control? I believe the more that we acknowledge that and surrender that, the more hopeful we will be, even in 2020. Because when we look at the book of Zechariah, it reveals three requirements for hope. Hope requires an honest assessment of the present. Hope requires a continual commitment to change. And hope requires trust in something good that lies beyond our control. To my friends, my brothers, and my sisters, may we be people of hope, even in 2020. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.